Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. Spin on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are exploring and celebrating Pride with discussion around the severely underrated queer vampire film Bit from 2019. The themes that we'll be discussing are positive queer representation in horror, the division among the waves of feminism, and the gender politics of vampire hunters. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. You know those teen vampire movies that feel like the horny soap opera fever dreams of a 8th grade diary? Here's how mine began. Graduating class of Central Oregon High. Be safe. Oh my god, guys, I'm gonna be fine. My first night in LA, and it's already the best night in my life. Hi, we're going to an uh, after hours party if you wanna come. <gasps> That's enough. Shoveled a lot in your life, haven't you? How would you like to hold the keys to the kingdom for a change? Now would be the time for any questions. Were you guys like vampires? Yup. Do you guys kill people? Indiscriminately. Innocent people? It's like 80-20. Rule number one, never turn a man into a vampire. Men can't handle power. Welcome to Bite Club. Fight Club? What about Bit Girls? Sounds like we're part of STEM or something. Welcome home. What, no coffin? Why would we do that? Uh, cause it's dope. You're staying away from drugs, right? Yes, Mom. My life's a horror movie. Life's full of things you never think should happen, and then it does. I'm going to be 18 forever. People just think you're aging well. So Jess, I feel like our stories of how we heard and came across Bit are similar, but why don't you tell the good folks at home in their living rooms <laughs> what your story is with Bit. My story is usually the same story that it always is. Kelly recommended the film to me. Actually, oh, yeah, she highly recommended Yeah, you were the one who saw it first, and then you like messaged me, and you're like, I highly recommend you watch this film. You're going to love it. Because around yeah. the time, I was watching, I had watched Byzantium. Yeah, and I was I really liked that film, and so yeah, I looked it up, watched it, loved it, and then I was so I liked it so much that I wrote a blog piece about it called "The Rise yeah. of the Female Vampire" on our website. 
Yeah. <laughs> I had heard about it because it did have a pretty successful festival run. And so I would see like just like rumblings, like word of mouth, the, the awesome fucking poster for it. And I kept hearing these great things about this, quote, intersectional queer feminist vampire movie. So, of course, I had to see it. And it was called Bit. And I just I had to see it. So I I mean, thankfully, now it's available for free on Tubi. It's rentable on YouTube. You can get it at more places than it was available in 2019. I was initially illegally streamed it. Sorry, Brad. But now it can easily be found on Tubi. Yay! <laughs> so you love this movie. What do you like about it? What do you love about it? All right. So when I first started watching it, it was one of the things was the aesthetic. So another reason why I remember Kelly recommended this film to me is because I also love the film Bliss. Yes. And one yep. of the reasons why I fucking love that film Bliss is that new take on vampirism, female vampires, and also the aesthetic. Bit yeah. has that. Bit has that same feel with the aesthetic. I love the music. I love all the colors in the film. The characterization of our characters. Mm-hmm. And I love right away the diversity among the cast. Right away. Mm-hmm. We have representation from the get-go with uh, Laurel and her transness not being the center of the film, but being a, you know, a part of the film that's important. But the ex- accepted intersectional diversity that's among the cast. You, got, you have trans, queer, people of color, lesbian, straight, non-binary, people all being represented. And I also, huh, I love and idolize Duke, but I know I'm a Laurel. And that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely 100%. Like, <laughs> and you know which one I am. <laughs> oh, yes, we know. We know. But yes, those so yeah. much I love about the film. And then, of course, as I've learned more and more about this film, I've come to like love it more and more, you know, yeah. knowing that James Paxton, the son of Bill Paxton, who I absolutely fucking adore, is Mark in the film. And then even last night in our screening, when um, Brad had made the comment about he's like, you know, that scene where he puts his sunglasses on and that's a reference to Near Dark and Severin. I was like, oh my God, how can I love yeah. this movie more? <laughs> yeah. And I think you'll get into this, Kelly, but there's so many throwbacks to films that we grew up with in the 80s and 90s that we love. And they're like little Easter eggs that you see and you don't realize it until you start, you watch this film over and over and you're like, oh, that's a reference to, the, mm-hmm. you know, the Foot Clan, the Teen- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, we have learned a lot about Bit this month through our Brad Michael Elmore interview, researching it, our screening last night. Uh, It's been amazing. Stuff that I like. Well, literally everything. I love the premise. I love the blood, the gore, the effects. I love Duke. Oh my God, Duke just is (laughs) she's I just love those type of like multi-layered monstrous women it just every time it just comes back to to those types of characters um the opening scene I do adore and it's it's like no fucking boys and then it's like boom bit I was like this is my movie right I knew why you're like so praising it so much because like the moment I watched that first scene and saw that I'm like okay yeah this is a Kelly movie like (laughs) it speaks to me and I loved it the moment I I watched it and yes I immediately texted Jess I was like yep okay you need to see bit immediately because this is right up your alley and 
I love Nicole Maines and her very cool nonchalance as Laurel in the film. I love teen girl horror. I love girl gangs. I love the incredible usage of color in this movie because I'm obsessed with that now. I love the costume design. I love the pacing. Of course, Duke's monologue or why and how and what this girl gang is and what it represents and why it exists. I love Greg Hill as Vlad. Oh my God, Vlad is like the campiest motherfucker. And I love him so much. The montage, we get into Duke's origin story. Okay, so I I know I said literally everything. So yes, there's so many things I love about this movie. It's a very self-aware film. And again, now that we've delved deeper into it and learning more about it through our interview and talking to other people and seeing their readings of it, it's there's so many layers and there's only there's like just three that we'll touch on today for this episode. But there's so, so much in this movie. And I love the amount of detail and thought that went into it. And I appreciate it more and I love it more each time I see it. Is there anything that you dislike about it? So the only thing I dislike about this film, and this is talked about in the interview with Brad, is the development, the lack of development of uh, Andy and Mark's storyline in this movie, mm-hmm. and like how it just, their hysterics, um, as Brad has said, like just kind of come out of nowhere, and it doesn't depict Laurel in kind of like the best light, and I remember watching this film too like we get to learn a lot about Duke and we get and I think one of the reasons mm-hmm. why a lot of people like Duke so much is you learn more about her and her personality and I feel like because yeah. we see more of that character development of Duke and then with Laura like we know there's character development but then it just kind of falls off and then learning later that uh, Brad actually has so much more intended for Laurel's uh, arc yeah. and I yeah. think this was brought up also too recently in um a panel talking about like oh they didn't want to make her completely the bad character you have to make her the likable character and that's what I was one of the things I was like oh Laurel's just so likable which is great but what about her and that's what I like the binary with uh, Duke is that she's likable but not at the same time mm-hmm. so anyway mm-hmm. that's the only thing I, I really dislike right. about the film right. <laughs> yeah that's rant. fair editing nonsense and whatnot and yeah pe- appeasing production companies and producers yeah um, and I don't dislike anything about this movie so there's that. There's that. <laughs> I love it. And I cheer. First time I watched it, I was like screaming at the TV. So and I was like, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and it's getting so much attention this month. And I'm very, very happy. About yes, that. exactly. It's great. Now would be the time for any questions. Do you guys kill people? Indiscriminately. Innocent people? I'd say it's like 80-20. You know, we try to target the trolls, the privileged, and their apathetic trust fund kids, but we're not a movement. We're a terrorist organization at best. So you were going to kill me? Yes. Why? People you're attracted to taste better. I don't want to kill people. Too bad. Knock it off. The world's a meat grinder, kid. Especially if you're a woman. I don't think you need a PowerPoint presentation to know that one's true. We're politically, socially, and mythologically fucked. Our roles are secondary. Our bodies suspect, alien, other. We're made to be monstrous, so let's be monsters. Let's be gods. What we offer here is not the chance to join a group, but the chance to truly be an individual. That's the pitch. 
So the first aspect of bit we're going to talk about today is queer representation in horror. So give a very brief, because there is an extensive historical references and everything that already exists out there, brief overview, just kind of provide some context and then show you why bit is so important and very, very different than every other movie that's come along since then. So it's really no surprise that films are predominantly produced by white cisgendered people, mainly men. And there is a severe lack of positive and accurate representation. There is a fact here of 1.3 out of all like 10 film directors are people of color. That's very low, right? We know this. There's a lack of positive representation. And really what we want is a nuance of representation. There's such a lack of humanity in trans characters or queer characters historically in film. You, It's okay for them to be bad. It's okay for them to be good. They're humans. And we're inherently flawed. So mm-hmm. that's okay to show these types of uh, people as villains or good characters. They're, but usually they're either victims or they're the killers themselves, there's a lack of nuance. So the infamous Hayes Code, which I actually didn't really know that much about until we did this research, so I'm always a learning experience for me, for sure. So that was in effect until 1968. And the Hayes Code imposed very problematic standards on the film industry, requiring that movies present, quote, wholesome and, quote, moral storylines. And obviously, if you're up until the 1960s and even still now, you know, homosexuality and showing any kind of queerness of any way, shape and form in films were it was presented negatively because they were they are and still marginalized identities. And they just were always shown to be negative, either, again, killers struggling with mental illness and the mental illness caused them to kill. Like there was always just there was never anything positive about it. They weren't allowed to be protagonist, main character characters, complex characters, you know, and having, again, that complete lack of nuance. Exactly. And like the Hayes Code really like to really harp on something which we consider Hollywood's favorite monster, which is gender nonconformity. And this is where often in Hollywood films, and this comes from the Hayes Code and this moral idea of the role of the woman, the role of the man, the role of the children, all the people in their places, race, gender, religion, but gender very in particularly, because so what we see in these films and a lot of the, in, the, in these Hollywood films that deal with gender nonconformity is gender as something that has to be overcome. So something mm. that we're tackling societal and cultural sexism. And it's like this theme of being empowered by a gender instead of being seen as weak of it. So, you know, ideas of, you know, women dressing up like men so they can get the better draw. Right. But at the end of the mm. day it's not them it's, it's, it's their, their personality that got on their job not their gender another idea is gender as a punchline so living like the other gender for a brief uh, period of time and you watch their comedic antics you know often the theme is men dressing up like women and this mm-hmm. equals a, this creates a laugh what it does is it starts creating trans and homophobia you know mm-hmm. being afraid of someone who dresses like a woman and, and not taking them seriously and then you get the idea of gender as tragedy so gender transgressions are seen as tragic so our trans and our, our queer characters are martyred to show how cruel the world can be to those who are different we see mm. a lot of trauma and hate crimes as seen as as inevitable instead of like a direct result of societal and systematic intolerance. Mm-hmm. And usually the tragedy to these characters is to help uplift the main mm-hmm. cisgender hetero character to learn to, that they learn from someone else's suffering and typically mm-hmm. is that it's a queer character. And then we come to the genre of horror. 
gender is our worst nightmare. <laughs> explicit and is either expressed explicitly in like a sleepaway camp or is implied through metaphor um, which we kind of get in films like uh, Silence of the Lamb but what Kelly was saying often it is gender is seen as you know you're either a psychotic or you're seen as living with a split personality you have a mental illness you know you're abject to society oh yeah there's something wrong with you if you are queer that's, yeah. that's kind of the, the bottom line for a lot of those early films and even again up until now and there is, and I didn't, again, I didn't even know this was a thing. Not like, I didn't know there was a trope named after this, but I definitely, obviously I've seen so many horror movies. I know that this happens, unfortunately. And it's the barrier gaze trope. Oh, yes. And so this is where the homosexual characters are more expendable than our heterosexual characters. They're more likely to die over our heterosexual characters. They seem to have less purpose compared to our protagonists, our hetero, uh, heterosexual characters, and they just often die early on. And mm-hmm. they just have very, again, very little character development. And there's a variety of different variants to this. I'll go over a couple of them. But gay guy dies first. So that's uh, often when the only queer character dies early on and before straight characters. We have a homophobic hate crime. So when a character is attacked and often murdered by homophobic characters, uh, Vasquez always dies. The the most lesbian coded character or or the closest thing the work has to a butch style character, butch in quotations, that always seems to get killed off or has the most violent and drawn out death. Leading into so much of this being very exploitative. Exactly. And I was really interesting learning about the barrier gaze trope because I heard about it first on the Horror Careers mm-hmm. podcast. Um, right. Trace yes. and Joe yeah. would mention it a couple times and I was like, barrier gay tropes. And I was like, okay, this got yeah. mentioned in some of our research when we were looking into uh, queer representation in horror. So then I went, like, I dove deeper as I normally do. And I was like, I want to learn about where this yeah. trope come from because a trope yeah. comes from somewhere and something. And it has yeah. a very interesting history and context to its use. So the trope barrier gaze it really actually started as a literary trope in the late 19th century and it continues to persist now in the modern media Mm. the reason why it came out in the late 19th century it was a literary way in which queer authors could write about queer characters without breaking the law and then like Mm. that's like a horrible thing to say but what ends up happening is that you end up having a same-sex couple who form a romantic relationship and one of the lovers ends up dying Mm. And then what ends up happening is that after that one lover dies, the other lover realizes that they were, you know, in some form of, uh, had some kind of like loss of sanity or sense of self. Because up until 1974, homosexuality was seen as a mental illness. And so it Mm -hmm. had to be kind of also portrayed that way. The reason why that person went um, for that uh, same-sex relationship was because they weren't right in the mind, but now they're back and they're, they're, you know, queer. But this was a way in which queer authors could be able to reach a queer audience and show some representation by creating these characters but unfortunately ending these relationships in such tragic ways so that they weren't breaking the law and they wouldn't be able to get any kind of social backlash from um, the public or have their publishers accused of promoting homosexuality because it was seen as a crime. But then what ended up happening is that over time that trope then started being um, appropriated and being used by cis, white, straight authors to punish the queer narrative in media. So to show uh, shows ways in which burying your trades is like punishing that 
being homosexual is Mm -hmm. immoral and wrong and so that kind of got so and then over time then we constantly see these in the horror movies where our queer characters are always the first to die they're always the first to go and now what's happening is that we're calling for this trope to end because we no longer need it anymore there's no Mm -hmm. reason to have to subversively hide queer representation in literature or in cinema anymore because we have the LGBTQIA rights movement we have pride we have all these things that are happening that we don't no longer need to use this trope we also have queer authors who are, mm-hmm. are not using this trope anymore and we need to allow queer authors and audiences to allow continue endorsing each other's material so that we don't need to have barrier gays so sorry little tangent on that but really important history Absolutely. And then we'll get into a brief, very, quote, very brief timeline of trans representation in horror. So, Jess, you already brought up the the idea that gender is our worst nightmare in horror, and it's expressed either explicitly through or through metaphor. Gender is the greatest monster of all. Mm-hmm. So early representation, every, you know, queer folks, homosexuals, they were definitely othered still are. They were meant to shock or horrify audiences. They were our tragic figures. So in films like Murder, Psycho, and Frankenstein Creative Woman. And then we start, even then, so that's like 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, we're like getting through, going through the decades. But early on, we saw this almost like a trope, this idea, this concept. So dressed as opposite gender killer stories of you're born one gender and now you're dressing as another and now you're getting revenge for whatever reason or forced into one gender when you're born as the other, like reflection of fear or sleepaway camp. And one very, very big, terrible thing that is often done is that the gender reveal is often the twist of the movie and usually at the ending terror train, dress to kill, transphobic pieces, folks. You could read it as that. You know, these these films posit that the character's transness is what drove them to murder. And Dress to Kill, which I watched this month for the first time, and holy moly, I love that movie. It was beautiful, and so many things was very well done with it. But you get to the end of it, spoiler, it's from the 80s, folks. The entire narrative is that This person struggles deeply with mental illness, and that's what drove them to kill women. They were this trans character, but they were struggling so much with mental illness. And the twists, they're supposed to be horrified. You're like, oh my God, they must be so disturbed individuals. I can't even imagine. And they even go into what, you know, trans folks have to deal with. They go deeply into explaining sex reassignment surgery, just like all quite fucking unnecessary that you get at the end. And I know that there's a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community that love this movie, and that's great. We can like things that have problematic elements. But that was a big thing that we, you know, saw still into the 90s um, that was really, it's very disturbing. Yeah, well, because when we saw, like, into the 90s, like, the slasher films were, like you're saying, using those big reveals as, like, a shock factor, right? So we always need our, like, jump scare. Here's our shock factor. And that's going back to that idea of gender nonconformity and then we really get that when we watch the film like Silence of the Lambs where it's just so much there's always so much conversation around this film about yeah. it being a very feminist film but all, and being a very queer film but then there's also like the you know it's also transphobic in yeah. the sense yeah. of you know it tried to remove the killer as from being transgender to starting Buffalo Bill as only being mentally ill and believing himself to be trans which yeah. as then it, it's really harmful because it goes against the argument that you know we've been fighting against 
people saying that we are not mentally ill. Like our choices, yeah. who we love is who we love and we are not mentally ill. But when we see that depicted in media in a film yeah. that wins an Oscar, yeah. it makes it harder to fight against the systematic abuse that had make, that made Buffalo Bill the killer because they just associated with him with being trans or queer. Yeah. And there's, you know, I listened to a great horror queers episode on Science of the Lambs that came out relatively recently. And that shot of Buffalo Bill, where he very proudly shows off his body when yeah. he's, well, tucking, as we call it, if you follow anything with drag queens, yes. um, with him tucking, that meant as that scene is meant to, again, shock yes. and repulse the viewer. And that is fucking awful. As a young person, it did not shock or repulse me. I have always found Buffalo Bill to be very sexy, and I thought that was a very sensual, the entire thing to be very sensual. But they, so that didn't work on me, folks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's supposed to repulse people, and that's fucking awful. And that was only what? I think Sansa Lambs came out in 1991, 92? Yeah. It's not that you, far away. Yeah, and then so. you get into the 2000s, and then a lot of films showing any kind of idea of transness or change was like that tapping into that right-wing fear of men undergoing transition and then all of a sudden preying on cisgender women and heterosexual men like oh no yeah. you've changed you know you've modified your body in a way that it's going to now make you more of a threat to us but what at the end of the day you're, they never were or never will be yeah. or using uh, gender modification as a horrible punishment yes. in films yeah. as well absolutely the skin I live in fantastic movie but oof it uses that reassignment surgery as punishment and it's fucked up yeah. And of course, that is a twist. Again, spoiler, but whatever. Yeah. It's a good movie to watch. But we have to talk about this because there's aspects of it. Even Cherry Falls has this aspect of the killer's dressing as his traumatized mother and then committing act of revenge. Again, 2000s, not that far, far away, like not that long ago, it was still happening. So I feel like, as we can tell, lack of evolution thus far still still have a ways and ways and ways to go before we sleep. And then the other aspect of it, that of course we have to bring up, is queer um, people of color, biracial people. There's even less of those queer characters. There's very few openly gay uh, black characters in horror movies. There's, um, I haven't seen this yet, but Death by Temptation has a queer character in it. There's a queer character in Blackula. Then, you know, Jess was watching True Blood last night. Yeah, uh, that's Lafayette. Tara, Tara, my favorite characters, even though I only watched season one. But uh, I was reading that Lafayette was so popular. I guess in the books, his character is supposed to die, but he was so popular that they kept him on the show. They did, exactly. And his arc gets really interesting. And same with Tara, her arc too. Mm -hmm. She comes out as queer later on in the series and it's great. And so we'll move into bit and how absolutely transformative, not pun intended, um, and important this film is. So bit was the very first film that portrays a trans character played by a trans woman, a trans person. It's not the twist in the fucking movie. It's not there to shock and dismay the audience, but it's part of this person, Laurel. It's not part of the horror. She's not the butt of the joke. And when I first saw Bit, if I didn't read the synopsis, I remember reading the synopsis. I was like, oh, this sounds even more interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I watched the movie for the first time and I was like, is this a mistake on IMDb? Because it's so, like, it's important and it's only hinted at in the movie, but it's, again, it's not just like thrown at your face because it's not this negative representation. It's not the joke. It's not the horror. It's not the central focus. It's not, again, a trans person struggling. And we see a lot of 
that. And we just went briefly through the history of it. But this is not Laurel's trans origin story. This is her origin story becoming a vampire. Yes, exactly. And that's even more interesting. (laughs) Well, you can even also look at not just her becoming a vampire, but her figuring out her life, her career, right? Like, her whole... Like, it's almost like... I remember, like, watching this film again last night and thinking about Laurel as a character, and one of the things that we love is that, you you, like you said, her transness is not the center focus of the film. She's humanized throughout the entirety of the film. She's treated like, you know, like we always want to be treated, human, normal. Nothing's different about me. I'm getting a drink and getting hit on by a woman. Awesome. Like, what's wrong with that? (laughs) But I love that it's not just about that. She's already figured out her identity as a trans woman. Now she needs to figure out her identity as a woman Trans woman adult. in the world as an adult, exactly. Out in the wild, right? <laughs> right? She's leaving high school. Yeah, right. She's leaving high school. So this film is about yeah. She be she just happens. She becomes a vampire, but her original goal was to go to LA, stay with her brother, and figure out her life and just totally who she wants to be because she's already figured every. The, she yep. figured out the major identity stuff that we're trying to figure out now. <laughs> but <Yeah>. she's <laughs> and I love that because. Again, once you rewatch this movie multiple times, yes. there's still little things that I will pick up. And it just hints towards there was a struggle. There was some hardships. And mm-hmm. she says it. Mark says it. There's like, you know, when she's leaving, when Laurel's leaving and her adorable parents are saying goodbye and they're like, it's been a hard few years. You know, Duke to Laurel says, you've shoveled a lot of shit in your lifetime. There's just yeah. like little things like that. Laurel says, my life has been like a horror movie. Well, most of it. And this, I think, um, I rewatched this around the time, Jess, that you wrote your The Rise of the Female Vampire piece because it just pro- inspired me to watch this wonderful movie again. But again, the Duke Laurel dynamic is so great. But then, and it, again, it's so subtle. So I guess like for me as a cisgendered woman, there's a lot of these things that I wouldn't have initially picked up on that again, in, in the bit panel earlier that I was watching for Fright Gown, they had said, well, I'm a trans person and I saw all of these kind of signs and clues immediately. And I'm like, totally, yeah. you know that, yeah. okay. But Duke says to Laurel, men can't handle power. Laurel says, what about me? And Duke says, never crossed my mind. And I fucking love that. Because Laurel's is like, well, what about me? Because she knows that she is a transgendered person. Yeah. So I don't know if Duke had, Duke and her had a conversation, but I feel like Duke, you're, she's a vampire. She has these, she has special powers and that perhaps mm-hmm. she knows what, there's this aspect of your piece that I loved. And I remember telling you when you wrote it, that Laurel has the heart of a woman. And so Duke can tell this and knows this. So yeah, Duke's like, nope, never crossed my mind because she is a woman and she is. 100%. And that's what we get in this wonderful kind of vampire, modern vampire storytelling is we're getting this diverse character whose story is not about her being a trans woman. It's about her as an individual being accepted into a group of other female vampires who are also, in a way, each one of them othered as well. And I think that's one of the things I really find interesting about the character Duke is Duke is technically, Duke is othered as well. She was a lesbian woman who came out in the 1970s and 80s. That cannot be easy. And we see a scene of that happening where she has uh, pop poured on her head when she's making out with her girlfriend in public, right? Yeah. And so it's yeah. like she can almost, when she sees Laurel and can kind of see in her her mind, she kind of she sees a kindred spirit as well. 
That's amazing. It's so good. And the other really one important scene between Laurel and Mark is when, you know, there's that big blow up and yeah. there's still some insecurities there. But, you know, Laurel asked him, she's like, do I embarrass you? And he's like, no, it's such a wonderful scene. But he's like, no, you never embarrass me. I always stuck by you through the therapy, through the fighting, through the suicide attempts. I never stood in your way of becoming who you are. Beautiful. The handling of this trans person's life and experience is done so delicately and so respectfully. And if you read any interview, listen to our interview with Brad Michael Elmore, but he did a lot of fucking research for this. And I don't, I don't know how many people who aren't queer or transgendered themselves that actually do research before they want to tell somebody else's story. And I love that he did that. And it shows throughout Mm. this movie. And it's so, so important, that entire scene. And then it goes in and he's like, but it turns out who you are is a selfish bitch. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) because, you know, let's go back to, you know, the producer of this film worrying that Laurel wouldn't be likable. She's just biting all these people and reveling in Mm. being a vampire. But again, you can make bad choices and still be a likable character. She is kind of selfish, but she's kind of selfish in a way that I think we can all understand if we're 19 years old and we're going to live in fucking LA, New York, wherever it is that she goes, I forget. And then she gets into this girl gang and you're just like, just having a good time and you forget about your fucking small town life. And that sucks. And that's where it kind of comes in with the Andy aspect of things. Well, you like that gets into a well, she gets into a girl gang that accepts her like 100 percent from the get go and accepts her identity. Like she doesn't have to start over again. Right. You know, like whereas when she lived at home, she like, you know, people would have to get used to who she is now. And, you know, and they'll have those awkward conversations where the dead name comes up and like all those things where she's, you know, so of course she's going to be selfish. I would be selfish, too, if I was in that situation. So. Yeah. I, I am saddened by the fact that they kind of did not get into that depth of Laurel's character. So, like, oh, we don't want to make her unlikable. But then they said in the bit panel this afternoon, they're like, this film does everything right in terms of like yes. showing trans representation. They give us all that depth of character, but it's okay to make a trans character not likable as well, as long as you give yeah. them more depth. Bit does is really right, whereas other horror films that have that introduce us to trans character has done it wrong. It's because they don't give us any of that character's depth. They only yeah. give us the mental yeah. illness. They show us a very thin layer yeah. of a character, and then that's it. And they just make them purely bad and wrong in our eyes, where human yeah. beings are very much more are more and more complex than that and this is where bit <laughs> bit is swinging the needle the right way where we're like okay yes good trans representation humanize this character and then we can yeah. just you know continue on with that and like yeah now make a messy you know relatable because we're all not perfect yeah absolutely and we've talked about complex female characters before we are not perfect shit gets messy in womanhood and let's just show it and again Laurel is a person in this. And there is this term called trans monstrosity that you can see in horror. So depictions of transness, particularly trans femininity, are molded and can be molded by cisgendered anxiety. And they can use some of the most harmful and disturbing misconceptions about transness under the guise of the horror genre. Again, the gender reveal is a trope and we don't have that in bit. You know, she's not some cross-dressing vampire killer. Definitely not some, you know, not a cross 
cross-dressing serial killer. She's not moving out to L.A. to to start killing people, you know, because of her struggles in her early life. But in so many of these movies, like we said, um, you know, sometimes our villain isn't really trans, in quotes. They're just dressing up that way for a different reason. Mental illness, revenge, whatever. There's always some kind of excuse for the transness, and there's absolutely no, quote, excuse for Laurel being who she is. So this is a movie that is not harmful. This is not a harmful story. And historically, um, the killers are even seen as perverse or perverted, right? And that is, you know, that comes down to sexual deviance for for homosexual characters and, and people. And again, we still see this in 2021, that they are still seen as deviant in their in their lives and their sexuality. They're still taboo. And it's tired. It's very, very tired, these, these narratives. Oh, it's really exhausting because like you're saying with the trans monstrosity that, that haunts these horror narratives, it is often mm. heavily focused upon trans women. They are rarely yeah. ever given the ability to reclaim their wage. They're often represented, like, and it's often representing trans femininity as molded by cisgender anxieties, um, which are actually yeah. much more harmful and create these misconceptions. So what ends up happening is that we get these uh, trans women are implied as either weak, passive, and skin-wearing monsters that are out, yeah. that are out after your women. Because yeah. what's end up happening is that they take these ideas of trans women and they, you know, they're okay with them if they're pursuing heterosexual relationships. But the moment they start like, pursuing a queer relationship, now it's a threat to cis yeah. femininity. And this yeah. ends up creating this idea of, you know, trans women's attraction to women is just a heterosexuality manifesting itself in cross-gesting and gender dysphoria. Yeah. So once again, going yeah. back to the idea that trans women are depicted as mentally and emotionally unstable and sexual perverts. Yeah, which is tired. We're tired of that trope. We don't want this trope anymore because it's also a problematic element. And we'll get into this in the podcast in uh, feminism. Um, This whole like, you know, you're not a real woman bullshit. (laughs) Have to like calm myself down when that comes up. Right. But that's not we don't get this in bit. Right. And we get that right from the get go. Like you said, with Duke saying didn't even cross my mind. You're a woman. Nope. And I'm going to treat you like a woman. Bottom line. (laughs) Yep. The end. Yeah. So it's great, though, trans trans people, and I think, w- like, women, too, have reclaimed or repurposed this monstrosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that for the monstrous feminine and stuff like that, too. And as in Bit, a quote from there, we're made to be monsters, so let's be monsters. Yes, exactly. So we have a guest clip today from BJ and Harmony Colangelo, the Colangelo wives, as I know they like to call themselves. So BJ and Harmony Colangelo are film analysts from the Midwest, current living their best life in the far far more affirming California. Together, the two have written about horror and publications like Fangoria, Shudder, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, Daily Dead, The AV Club, Vulture, The Daily Dot, Autostraddle, We Are Horror, and many, many more. Together, they also co-host the very wonderful and fun This Ends at Prom, a weekly podcast analyzing the staying power of womanhood featured in coming-of-age and teen girl movies from the queer, feminist, cisgender, and transgendered perspectives of the wives Colangelo. Keep an eye out for both of them in the upcoming documentary about queer horror from Shudder. Hi, Harmony. Hello, BJ. I want to talk to you about a movie that I know is really near and dear to your heart. Yes. I would love to talk to you about Brad Michael Elmore's bit. Oh, God, I love this so much. <laughs> I know you love it so much. So I want to know, what is it about Bit that you love so much? 
I love the bit is an incredibly stylish and fun film, first and foremost, because that's how it ropes you in. Mm -hmm. But I also love that bit is a trans story that is not central to transness, but is influenced by transness. Mm -hmm. Because Laurel is a trans character who's never explicitly stated, but there's there's allusions I would argue that if you are somebody who is familiar with the trans community or know and love somebody in your life that is trans, it's pretty obvious in how her life and her character is discussed by those around her. But to the quote unquote common man, I think it's a little bit more ambiguous. Yes. Like they never use the word. Right. They're never just like, oh man, they don't Laurel's have a-, a trans vampire. <laughs> they don't have like a twilight moment where it's like, Say it, vampire. <laughs> Say it, transgender. <laughs> right. They don't have that moment ever. And I think I love Laurel because I'm so used to seeing trans characters and, and you know, trans actors get either killed off in like a barrier gaze type of way mm-hmm. or they're treated like monsters. And in that sense, uh, Laurel is a, ba- is a great example of what you shouldn't do but then resurrects it in the most glorious way possible because they kill her off and make her a monster who has to murder other people and fit like the exact bill of what every bigot thinks a trans person is out to do, like stalk them in the night and threaten them. (laughs) And yet it's the most glorious and punk and affirming awesome way possible. I agree completely. I think that Laurel is one of the best presentations that we have not just in the horror genre, but in film in general mm-hmm. of a trans character, because there is a lot to be said about trans representation. My suggestion for people always is go watch Disclosure on Netflix. It's Intro to Trans Representation 101. Easy peasy. There you go. There's some history. It's not perfect. There's a lot more nuance that could be there, but that's a really, really good jumping off point. Mm-hmm. And you're totally right in that Laurel is killed and it's like, oh, no, bury your gaze. And then it's turned into a vampire. Oh, no, a monstrous femme. But it's done so in a way where it's like, if this is how we're going to consistently treat these characters, we're going to lean into it instead of making it the end game. And I think that's so smart. Yeah, especially because the most memorable quote, at least for me from this movie, is Duke saying, like, the world wants us to be monsters. So let's be monsters. And that means very different things when you're a cis woman Versus a trans woman. Mm -hmm. And I love the discussion between Duke, who's like effortlessly cool, but is like pure chaos in the form of white feminism. Oh, completely so. Laurel is, is is a lot more nuanced about it. I agree with you completely. I think in my first review of this, I nicknamed this the intersexual vampire girl gang movie you didn't know you needed. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what we're playing with here. Yeah. But what I love so much is that this movie is all about power dynamics. And you think because of Duke's speech and the rules they've set up about how we're never going to turn men because they can't handle power. What we don't talk about is that there's also this like white feminism angle to Duke and how she is abusing her power and Mm -hmm. she is like drunk with power. And that is something reflecting the systems that we have here in America. Oh, absolutely. And it handles it with so much more grace yet also aggression and i think (laughs) compared to other films and i think we need that aggression though 
I think yeah. we've gotten into this weird thing culturally where it's very much this like toxic positivity girl boss energy of women need to support women. Some women suck. And they need to be held accountable. And in this movie, Duke kind of sucks for Mm -hmm. as cool as she is. And as much as I love her, she needs to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And I love that this movie is unafraid of being like, yeah, no, we we need to change some things. We need to hold you accountable. And I love that that accountability comes at the hands of a trans woman Mm -hmm. because trans people are the most marginalized people in this country. Like yeah. trans women, disabled trans women of color, like that is the most disabled person. That's, that's the bingo in, card of bullshit. Yeah, that's the that bingo. you're unfortunately going to oppre- have to overcome a oppres- lot of stuff. <laughs> the impression, that's the oppression bingo card. Correct. But having a trans woman being like, no, this is not how shit should work, I think is wonderful. And I love that we champion Laurel. Like she's not a side character. Mm-hmm. She's not somebody that we're meant to feel sorry for. She's the she's the shining star and she's the one who's going to make change. And I just find that really poetic and really beautiful. Yeah, especially because Laurel as a character, she's not even perfect. Oh, she's no. very flawed, which comes with youth, obviously, but also just from being a person. Yeah, it kind of gets us out of this sort of model minority mm-hmm. trope that we see not just in entertainment but also in real life and we allow her to be messy and selfish and not great at communication and these are all things that are completely normal attributes for a teen girl yeah and there's consequences to her trying to be perfect mm-hmm. yeah and I, th- I think that that's great and ultimately I think that bit is one of the most important movies that we've had in a very long time. And I feel like as the years go on, this movie is going to have a legacy, I would say, similar to that of like like a ginger snaps. Oh, yeah, I can see that, especially because when it first dropped, it was very quiet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a sad day when Brad Elmore had tweeted, hey, this movie's on Tubi. No one told me. Mm-hmm. Like, it just kind of, like, hurts my heart that we are in this place where we are so saturated with content that it's already difficult to find the things that we love. And because this was so unceremoniously just sort of dumped online, mm-hmm. I, I know that it's going to take time for this movie's audience to find it. And that's why it's so important that we continue talking about this film and bringing attention to it because otherwise it would have gone forgotten yeah and i think that everyone who is very loud about this film is a large reason why a lot of people are covering it this year because it was a very it it was it was like it was probably 2020's best kept secret and now in 2021 everyone's just like have you heard about this movie i agree completely and you know what i'm i'm happy that people are are finding it yeah me too thank you both so much for your very insightful perspectives Yes, thank you so much. It was great to have you on. So moving into feminism. <laughs> the big Maybe where some people bow out of our episode. But we didn't, didn't scare you off during the representation part. Well, oh thank you goodness. for staying. So And also too, like episode 35, like feminism makes its way yep. into a lot of our episodes. Sorry, guys. Yep. <laughs> I just wanted to throw there to remember, for folks to remember, feminism boils down to ending gender discrimination and bringing about gender equality for all genders. Okay? Yes. So we're going to br- give a very brief 
again, overview of the different, quote, waves of feminism with a focus on the later waves, um, because we're going to talk about Laurel and Duke as characters themselves, as women, okay? Just before Kelly jumps into the first wave, I just want to say that we're using the wave metaphor as just an easy way to explain feminism. I know in our research, we learned that a lot of people think that the idea of the wave is kind of reductive because it suggests that all of the feminist agenda are a single unifying agenda and we understand and we will get into how it is not a single unifying agenda but we're using the wave metaphor just to make it simple yes each wave is supposed to build on itself it's not a complete end point yes of course thank you so the first wave was around 1848 to 1920 that's about the point that society is recognizing that women are human beings not Holy property shit. well we had to start we had to start somewhere <laughs> Unfortunately, though, the the women of this movement, uh, the suffragettes and stuff like that, our first waivers fought mainly for white women's rights. Yeah. There was still some racism involved in early feminism. Still happens now. But, you know, it was the early 1900s. That's kind of where they were at at that point. So it was kind of mainly about equal opportunities for education and employment and the right to own property. Yeah, it was it was a largely uh, political movement at the time. You know, there was marches and lectures happening, a lot of protests, a lot of ridicule. There was even violence. Some of the suffragettes were willing to fight for their right to vote. <laughs> but then they also started yeah. to focus on other specific rights, such as reproductive rights. And then in 1920, yeah. women got the right to vote. But it still wasn't easy for all women. Absolutely. Oh, what I learned, which was really, really great. In 1916, Margaret uh, Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the U.S. in defiance of a New York state law that forbade the distribution of contraception. She would go on later to establish the clinic that became Planned Parenthood. That was in 1916? Yes. That's amazing. Well, that's when the, yeah, the first birth control clinic came out. Yeah. Yeah. Considering, you know, it wasn't only until 1920 that women could actually be seen as people and have the right to vote. Yeah. Okay, not that long ago. Oh, goodness. Um, Do you want to bring us into a second wave? Yeah, so our second wave of feminism, it focuses around the 1960s and the 70s, and this is where we start focusing on the institutions that are holding women back. So women taking on sexism. We are questioning gender roles. We are questioning our roles in the family. You know, we start seeing the Equal Pay Act of 1963 comes out. We have Roe versus Wade in 1973. But all of this comes from the book, the Feminine Mystique, written by Betty Friedan, <laughs> which rails yeah. against the systematic sexism that taught women that they are to be in the home, and only broken women were unhappy for not being housewives. And women were angry. Mm-hmm. We Women were felt ripped off. They were sharing <laughs> this book amongst each other and looking, you know, like, hey, yeah. now we've got political equality, but we don't have social equality. So let's start looking at this. Let's start yeah. looking at birth control, reproductive yeah. freedom, financial freedom, rising the awareness of domestic violence, marital rape that was still happening in the 1960s and 70s, people. Sexual harassment in the workplace. We actually went much deeper into second wave feminism in our episode four, uh, Female Empowerment and the Witch, uh, because it was very important when we talked about Season of the Witch. So we get deeper into there. This is just a brief overview, but you're right. It was, we did have black women and white women advocating for reproductive women, but we had women of color wanting to fight not just for the right for contraception, still was a problem, and also abortions, but also to stop the forced sterilization of people of color and people with disabilities, which was not a main priority for the mainstream women's movement at the time. And during this period is when we started getting the, quote, angry feminists 
the hags, the man-hating dykes. The the radical feminism, which is interesting because this is yeah. where we see this like break. There's like breaking parts in feminism. We got the mainstream liberal feminism, which is all about you know reducing gender discrimination and promoting equality. The radical feminism, which is all like no, the system is inherently patriarchal and it needs to be overhauled. Men versus women, and then we yeah. get the cultural feminism, which is all focused on the female essence and how it differs from men. Which then we start working into the third wave. Totally. So let's start technically in the 1990s and there is some debate of if we're still in a third wave have we moved into the fourth wave again each era in theory is building upon themselves adding in new aspects that make sense culturally and socially for the time because it's not 1950 anymore it's 2021 so what's different who are we adding into the discourse so 1990s this was definitely a time about welcoming individuality lots of rebellion this is an era of reclaiming I grew up as a teenager during this time so I think there's a portion of that that really sits deep in me because that's where Uh, That's when I grew up. So that kind of makes sense that that is what I am drawn to. We have the vagina monologues, the gorilla girls, punk rock riot girls. Women were more about freely expressing their sexuality and how they spoke, dressed, and acted. This was a time of no rules. This is where we had more women in positions of power. We started fighting for, you know, a con- being more conscious about expressing our sexuality and not caring about how we dressed, how we spoke, our acts, or embracing our femininity. And, you know, there was, and there was kind of like this rebellion among the third waves and the, you know, the second waves, right? You know, because second wave feminists were like, well, no, don't wear bras, burn bras. And well, that was a myth. That's, that's a total myth. But women were embracing their sexuality, I found, and, you know, saying it's okay to be feminine as well as a feminist. And then we also Absolutely. started seeing more intersectionality and we're seeing the right, mm-hmm. uh, we start seeing more fighting for trans rights and being more conscious about race and, you know, paying more attention to how other women uh, of other races and cultures are being discriminated against. Absolutely. And the even the term or the phrase intersectionality was formed in 1989. And even, and I thought this was interesting to throw out there as well, it's important, but the phrase third wave feminism was coined in 1992 by Rebecca Walker, a 23-year-old black bisexual woman. She was like, we're in a new phase, folks. We're yes. all in it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It was all becoming about like, yep. you know, intersectionality, embracing being a woman, being a girl. You can be an angry feminist and still look pretty if you want to, you know, be, yeah. you know, you don't have to reject girliness that, you know, can be deemed as misogynistic. It was not, it's not censoring yeah. women about what gives them pleasure. You know, um, even if it is part of the patriarchal struggle, we can take it back and reclaim that. Totally. I really like this quote from uh, the Bikini Kill lead singer, Kathleen Hanna, but she wrote in her Riot Girl manifesto in 1991. She said, because doing, reading, seeing, hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and the sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodiedism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own lives. Because we are angry at society that tells us that girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, and girl equals weak. Let's bring it all down to the basics. That's what we were being taught, and that's what they were fighting against, and that's what we are fighting against still. Like, through through this research and what the couple of articles that we read, though this period maybe had less, quote, cultural impact and focus, it was kind of, it was Mm. more of like a a general vague, the mainstream stuff was very, like, vague, didn't really have lots of momentum, and then we get into perhaps what might be the fourth wave that we're in now, or present day kind of feminism, and we're kind of in a tech 
technological phase, which makes sense yeah. because, you know, the 90s, the internet was very, very new and then it's kind of exploded. And so here we are building on the third wave emphasis on inclusivity. And we are asking those hard questions about what empowerment, equality and freedom really mean. And again, trying to be as intersectional as as possible, bringing everybody into the fold mm-hmm. because everybody deserves rights and respect and representation and visibility is the word I'm looking for. There is still aspects of white feminism that unfortunately are out Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. because you can't ignore that there are unique struggles to women of different cultures, of different colors. And that's, you know, that's important too. We all are women. They have, they just, everybody just experiences things differently and so we can't be so like narrow-minded we have to include everyone and of course trans rights are a huge part of the conversation now too which is very very important absolutely yeah kind of why we're here today talking about bit exactly and like this fourth wave of feminism you know all comes around the idea of the rise of the me too movement and social media being used as a platform for promoting inclusivity this this wave of feminism is more queer it is sex positive it is trans inclusive Mm -hmm. it is body positive is very digitally driven it is you know working to include more rights of women of people of color and as various of religions it's also at a time too where i'm finding that this fourth wave of feminists are having to deal a little bit with some of the second wave feminism that is still mm-hmm. present that is still you know like that is of our you know well i think kevin lee and i would be you know born during the third wave so like our mothers and our aunts and stuff like that you know mm-hmm. are these second wave feminists who are calling out women in the Me Too movement and saying that it's a little too late to go after men who forced you to do sex for work. Mm, That's very problematic. Arguments over consent and then once again against trans women as they believing Mm -hmm. that they are not real women. So this is kind of like right now where we're in this fourth wave movement. Yeah. We're dealing with a lot of those old ideas. Rare and the ugly head, the very outdated ideas. Well, I think that's what gets into bit, right? In terms of like um, that idea of like you have these different waves of feminism, but then you also have this theme of power and who has it. Yes. Yes. This movie (laughs) is all about, bit is all about power. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who's trying to get it? Who's trying to reclaim it? Who are we taking it from? Why the fuck do they have it and we don't have it? Absolutely. So how does this relate to bit? So I want to start this conversation off with two very, very important quotes from the movie that shows, yeah, how different and just the different generation and different experiences that Duke and Laurel have. Duke early in the film says, I envision a world where all women are vampires. At the end of the movie, Laurel says, I envision a world where everyone is a vampire. And that is super important. Huge differences, right? Yeah. So why don't we talk about Duke first? Okay. Duke, 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 who I see as representative of more like second to third wave Mm. feminism. Obviously, she welcomes individuality, definitely rebellion. I mean, that was an era of reclaiming, right? She's in, she's that punk rock aesthetic. She's got the bold fuck you attitude, which reminds me so much of the 90s. So I so much love her for that. Again, a time of no rules. She can't came out to New York because she knew she was different and then she finally over time realizes that she's a lesbian and she even says I reveled in this identity and then 
when she meets Vlad, she's forced into, you know, back into uh, heteronormativity, which yeah. bothers me right there, that as well, too. But yep. like you're saying, she's part of this idea of, of, of being a, a second wave feminist, you know, like, fuck these men because they forced me into something I didn't want to be. But at the same time, too, she can relate to uh, on a third wave because she is uh, also a queer woman. Absolutely. But she, you know, we can tell by how she looks that she embraces femininity. She does have, like revels in the power of the female form or the performance of femininity, makeup and clothes. Like there's an absolute aesthetic. She has put thought into what she looks like. And she obviously would, she definitely would have been a ride girl during the nineties. That's just like, <laughs> that's how it is. But I feel like, you know, she does kind of come, she, she has, I feel like she's this wonderful kind of mashup of these different waves and these different ideas. Mm. But I think there's a part of her that's kind of stuck in older, older ideals. Like, Duke definitely wants to hold men accountable for their actions. Like, absolutely. And that's what we want to do right now. We're not afraid to be like, let's call this person out. Nope. How about take responsibility for your actions? And we see this actually in the montage of killing a bunch of dirtbags. Creepers, cops, pretentious fucks. Like, we see that. And like, she's fucking loves that. She loves that. She takes on this idea of vigilante justice. I'm going around and I'm yep. going to avenge all of men who've mm-hmm. been, all the women who've been wronged by men or hurt by men. We see that yep. when she takes revenge for Claire at, you know, at their little hangout where she, yep. you know, wins yep. at the pool game. She bosses the guys around. She's like, get up there and you better not fail on me type thing. And then she's like, no, I'm going to kill you because of what you did. What you think you could got yep. away with, I'm not letting you get away with it. And that's just why... I love the character of Duke in the sense that she is a tragic character as well, because even though she yes. is representative of, a, you know, people have said of a very white form of feminism, very radical in the sense that, you know, she wants men to pay. She doesn't want, you know, to be ever manipulated by men again, but she is coming from a place of trauma. She was totally. manipulated by men. She had to survive in New York. She had to prostitute herself to make yep. ends meet. And then when she came out as queer, she was probably beaten up. She was probably attacked. We see a scene where she is assaulted by a guy where yep. she's making out with her girlfriend, drawing, like, pouring yep. water, like, pouring yep. something down her face. And then she meets Vlad. And then Vlad robs her of her yep. queer identity by making her a vampire and making, making her one of her brides. So, of course, she's going to be yep. angry. Of course, she's going to want Absolutely. men to hurt she has been hurting as well. And I know yeah. that people yeah. find her problematic because she ends up using Vlad's power of glamour on the other women of the group, uh, Izzy, Frog, and Rio. Yeah. But I watching that scene again last night and knowing uh, Brad's intention for Duke and knowing a little bit and, and coming from a place of trauma and stuff too, Duke was using that power to protect her group. She wanted that their lives to be easy. It wasn't easy for yeah. her. She didn't have an easy life when she came in. She didn't have an easy life as a vampire either. She was, yeah. you know, enslaved from the get-go so she wanted the same for the other girls she wanted them to all to have it easy and then even Laurel makes that comment it's just so easy well yeah Duke is making it easy for her she's using that power to protect you however she did the thing where she went a little too far and enforced her will on the group yeah without their consent yes and you know that's a big thing and and all of this just like you said with the Vlad situation it's you know she makes choices but she has absolutely good intentions because she knows and in that wonderful model where we she's trying to reclaim her power and making sure that these other women have power 
because we know how we have to struggle and fight tooth and nail to get it for ourselves. So she was able to give this to women. It was like this wonderful mm-hmm. gift, you know, and then she tarnished it. But I think she came with good intentions and I I just, I can't dislike her for all of this. I understand where she's coming from and your trauma and your life experiences and yeah. who you become as an adult. So absolutely. Does it, does it make her a little bit too steadfast and maybe quote extreme and her rules I would say no but I can see why people would say yes <laughs> I could go either way I respect both opinions but you can see moments and you can see moments in uh, Diana's performance as Duke she does bring a vulnerability to that character where you have moments being yeah. like well, maybe she does question what she's doing, right? You know, like even at the end, maybe she thinks, yeah, maybe I did take it a little too far. But like, I can understand why she's trying to protect the group because when the first bride change turns uh, turns another man into the group, I can understand why Duke is afraid because the first bride is part of like way before first wave feminism. She is a woman that only understands that her role in life is through a man. That she needs to, you know, because she came from a time where if she didn't sleep, get married or sold off, she would have died as destitute or as a prostitute right and so this is why duke does see the first bride as a bit of a threat because she's just like oh she has never you know didn't experience she came up in a different way and this is where i'm trying to protect the group but yeah i can understand where at the end of the day it does end up clashing with laurel who is really a representative of this idea of third wave and fourth wave feminism of intersectionality like no no no, we need everyone to have the power we all understand that we've been hurt laurel was hurt she came from a very hurt place but she's coming from a place of like yes move through the trauma work through the trauma and when we are open to everyone else we can work through this trauma together yeah interesting point just to quickly go back but we see as that first bride when she's out of the hole guess who she fucking brings back vlad yeah yes yeah Bring so, the man back in to point. put all these women yep. back to back in order. Yeah, need need to be controlled. We need a leader, need a little patriarch, kind of keep things in check here. Great, great point. Can't completely overthrow the system. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so Laurel, she's great. I love, yeah, she's, she's kind of this like emblem of intersectionality of feminism. But also like, I think Duke understands that as well, but she's still stuck in some older ideas because she has this multiracial group of mostly queer, women it's a very diverse group right so there is an overlap just like the waves are supposed to be but of course intersectionality is going to be huge here because laurel is a trans woman as we know her body and literally her existence is political right yeah and i love the again a little hinting at this when vlad looks at laurel up and down he's like i suppose it's the new millennium but you know where he's coming with that because he is an old vampire he knows that laurel is trans he doesn't really know a word for it because he's an old old man an old old white man but you know laurel comes back and defeats vlad very easily so fuck yeah laurel But she also says it's time for some new rules, which is true. It's very true. And it's this great moment that she has with her brother. And she says to him, because Mark is like, well, what, you know, what about what Duke said that like, I'm just going to turn cruel. And she says, hey, just because you're a dude doesn't mean you have an excuse to be a shithead. Which is true. Keep it together, folks. Keep it together, man. Just because you're a dude doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. So just keep it together and then you won't face the consequences. Or or else, like Laurel said, do it together, work together. She wants to help change the world, right? Like we said, we're sharing power. The movie is about power dynamics. And this was what I really loved about Laurel is that she understands that we also 
need men to become outspoken and active allies because there's so many men and like I dated one who I would see as a feminist man and he loves women and absolutely behind this whole cause Mm -hmm. 100% but did he really do or say anything? No. We all need to be in this fight together and Laurel gets this. She envisions a world where we are everyone is a vampire not just women everyone is because in order to fight and defeat the fucking patriarchy we need everyone we need to fight for everyone women's trans queer everyone's right to live and be who they are essentially and that's where duke falls short it's just like a sh- there is an end point right she kind of falls short on that a little bit Exactly. And uh, what I love also, too, about Laurel as a character, because she's when she addresses that to Mark and says, you know, like you said, don't be a shithead. She's like, yeah, guess what? The Dukes before us made all this known. They did the work. They broke the structure. They fought against the men who were just like, no, you are property. I literally own you. These women, yeah, they had to be tough. They had to be the, you know, the bribe would say Duke was like taking that brick and throwing it through the window because no one was listening. Now, yep. you don't have a reason not to listen. We have been saying this since 19, 1848. We have been singing this tune. <laughs> yep. You can't play ignorant anymore. You cannot play, you know, and yep. yes, Duke, you know, it was, we were so happy that we had your muscle and stuff like that at the time when we needed it, but now we don't need it as much anymore. Now is yeah. the time for education. Now is the time to let everyone come together and fight together, you know, because before we, we were fighting, but we were still divided and we weren't making as much headway. Like, imagine how the feminist movement yeah. would have, how much traction we would have gotten if everyone really fought together for all, like, yeah. just as rights as humans instead of being like, well, no, because you're black, this, you know, your rights are not as, as yeah. important as mine as a white woman. It's like, well, no, 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 no. We're tr- we want to fix that. And I think that's what Laura is, is representative of. Like, I don't think, because at the end of the day, we don't, she doesn't kill Duke, right? Duke still gets her yep. heart. She just goes into the cage. Maybe that's going to be like a cool time period for Duke and be like, thank you for what you did. We still, yeah. but we still need your muscle. We still need your strength, but we just need it in a new direction. Duke just needs a timeout. <laughs> and, and she'll come back, right? And the other thing, you know, again, when I was watching the, rewatching the movie last night for the hundredth time, it's just like, where Bit, again, is so different is that, hey, guess what? None of the women died. None of our queer characters no. died. Our trans character yes. didn't die. She's kind of like our, quote, final girl in a sense, even bigger and more modern than that. But everyone fucking lives. Guess what? Guess who dies? Vlad, again. A bunch of fucking vampire hunters, which we'll get into next. They fucking live, man. And we don't get that often. Laurel lives and takes control and is a very empowering character for literally everyone. All the cis, white, heterosexual individuals die in this movie. Except for, oh, wait, no, wait, no. Frog is Latino. Yeah. But I remember, yeah, yeah. Brad did mention that yep. Frog is straight, but she is Latino. So yes, once again, yep. all cis, white, heterosexual, <laughs> heteronormativity dies in yep. this movie. <laughs> all of our historically othered feared, monstrous archetypes live. Because you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if Mark comes out as pansexual or something later on because he is definitely not written as a straight character. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, you're not super straight. We can see it. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're going to move on to our final discussion and it's about our Van Helsings. So uh, another layer that I thought was we thought was very interesting about Bit is that our vampire hunters in this movie are all I'm going to assume cisgendered white straight individuals okay and then it got me thinking I'm like why are vampire hunters almost always men and why are they almost always 
White. We've got our Slayers. We've talked a lot about Vampire Slayers. They're women. We have Anita Blake, who's like a vampire hunter, necromancer. She's in books. It's fine. But our Van Helsing from Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1897 was our first archetype of our vampire hunter. And then again, I was going through it. I'm thinking about all the different vampire hunters I've seen in movies, Mm -hmm. in in film anyways, Supernatural or Winchester Brothers. You've got Blade and Whistler in Blade, the Frog Brothers in Lost Boys. You got Rupert Giles and Angel. Hmm? Sorry, but technically wouldn't Blade be half vampire so wouldn't he oh yeah yeah be no, considered he is, a, but he's yeah. also also a vampire hunter okay yeah okay and a dude <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> whistler is super white god i oh, love yes. him but, yeah you know, yeah super white john carpenter's vampires we have jack Ugh. crow and his crew the from dust till dawn lucien from the underworld series i mean he's a werewolf so there's an extra element to that but the kind of list goes on folks So what is that about? And then I saw that there wasn't tons of research and like opinions and analysis into this. And it's weighing on my mind and probably smarter people should look into this. But it was just really interesting to me. And I was like, well, let's kind of get into that because I think that's another wonderful layer of this film. So the relation between the human and vampires obviously is one of antagonism, building up some context here. And our response to vampirism and vampires is one of fear and violence, right? Van Helsing and his followers or his other vampire hunters are usually coming from an era of superiority. Their intellectual prowess is what's going to help them defeat the vampire. And as we know, vampires historically are othered. Right. And so Van Helsing and his little pupils and other vampire hunters that he teaches expands the horizons. And it's like, stay with us here. We're going to get to a point. But he's going to expand the horizons because what they previously thought that was impossible becomes possible. Well, it's bringing intelligence into the identity of the vampire hunter, The right? Their identities are, yeah, yeah they kill vampires. But you, like you said, they're intellects. They're scholars. Yeah. They're men of well-versed in history and mythology. And yeah. like you said, Van Helsing is that, that proto-archetype. And then we'll also see that with Giles, right? He knows everything about yeah. vampires, that myth and they pass yeah. that knowledge along to other people in, in forms of educating them, but going after and hunting and killing them. And it's being able to also be like almost like a secret society where this knowledge yeah. is protected and this knowledge is passed yeah. on and your ability to teach it to, you know, other students to be able to hunt and kill vampires. Because, you know, in a way you have to protect society. You can't have that knowledge out to everyone because it's mm-hmm. dangerous right so of course who are the keepers of this knowledge well typically it's always cis white White. hetero men Men. (laughs) they keep all the knowledge (laughs) they keep all the power they do exactly so this kind of the basic paradigm uh between our human society and vampiric otherness particularly concerns purity there's a lot of us versus them mentality and historically, of course, vampires got to be controlled. They must be destroyed and that humans and vampires must exist antagonistically. And though there is some evolution happening in film, the white men, the white men in bit have not evolved. And oh I think God. that's the point. And that's what's so interesting about bit. OK, and I read this little paragraph that was like kind of blew my mind a little bit, but it got my brain thinking So in Bram Stoker's Dracula, so this is a quote from this article, Van Helsing's praise carries the white man's burden of British colonialism into U.S. colonialism. The film 
adaptation, interprets the novel as a story about invasions, not by vampires, but by, quote, vampire hunters. It both sustains the imperialist illusion that European civilizations and practices of Christianity are unequivocally good for everyone. And then we look at our vampire hunters, okay? We learn more about Jacob, okay? This is the guy that we do see killed. He's the one that has a name. Yeah. And he's described by Dew. He's a Joe Rogan listener. He thinks women deserve to be raped. On Tinder, he says he's, quote, old-fashioned. We fucking know what that means. He likes to fish. I'm going to say he believes that he has the right to bear arms. He thinks there's a conspiracy theory of a gang of female vampires. He's kind of hillbilly as fuck, okay? And so I see the these other hunters, when they come to attack the female vampires, they use traps and fire. They kind oh, of, yeah. instead of just coming with like a stake to the heart, like you would kill vampires normally, they want to like torture them and really hurt them. And I know there's like kind of that, that aspect of like the older white man wants to release the master who's a male vampire, but he's this familiar. He wants to be turned into a vampire. So I feel like he's, he has, he has different intentions, but I feel like he fits really well into them because this, he calls the girls snowflakes. Okay which is a derogatory word for for people who are, quote, too sensitive to others, okay? And I feel like these gang of white dudes are probably survivalists as well. I okay? thought about so that I'm last kind night. Of I going that on. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, these guys, are like, they're in their bunker with all, like, they're playing their yep. games. So they got their lights. They got their all their weapons. Yep. I'm like, these guys are survivalists. <laughs> yep, absolutely. They all hang out together. And I did, they fucking hate women, okay? That's where I'm getting from this. And then looking, looking at our bit girls... They are a multiracial group of mostly queer female vampires who, as we know, often and mainly kill bad men. And historically, vampires are the other. They represent many different othered groups of people. Early, like Dracula, we saw xenophobia with that. He was an aristocrat from a European country coming to America. That's very weird. We're not really sure about what this guy is. But guess who also is othered? People of color, queer, women. So this group of Van Helsings find these women too dangerous to live. They are monstrous othered women. They're vigilantes. They're a terrorist group at best, as Duke describes them. So like... I'm, I have so much more, but yeah, what, you, what, what, what do you feel about that? I'm just like, there's not much information out there, but I'm just like, we have this, this historical, like through century of literature and film of essentially intellectual superior white men killing vampires who, you know, the vampire is representative of a variety of different things, depending on which movie or book you're reading. And in this film, that's what these vampires represent. So yeah, of course these guys are going to go against the big girls. Of course. They unsettle the status quo, right? They're shaking things up. And these men don't like that. Absolutely. And this is like, we're jumping on like a whole new kind of concept here. Something that spinsters want to talk about, the gender politics of vampire hunting. Yeah, <laughs> misogyny. If you look yes. at it, if you look at the idea of, of Van Helsing, the very first Van Helsing, when he comes along, he's a white doctor of intellect, a scientist. He's already instantly yep. respected. Yep. He brings on another Classist. doctor. He has Hart, uh, Jonathan Harker, who's a lawyer. You have a rich aristocrat, yep. right? And they're all yep. trying to help Lucy because of all of a sudden her burgeoning sexuality, right? This vampire has opened mm-hmm. her up, and, you know, and she's expressing the sexuality. And there's this whole idea back then yep. of like, you know, morals and, you know, not being sexual yep. deviants. And so the, these white men yep. have to control these women and have to get rid of, you know, like you said, 
Dracula because he's a foreigner who is corrupting the English women yep. of England, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, Move they away are. from that. And then, and then as you continue on, like, and I was just thinking about, like, John Carpenter's vampires. James Wood is so misogynistic in that film. And oh, he's Bald- fucking the Baldwin brother. <laughs> it, the, but the, the vampire slayers yeah. are very misogynistic. They're once again, they're like, yeah. nope, you guys are deviant, you're other, you're terrible. And then we, and then we see, and you know, but they are also like, you know, like, they're the bad, tough guys because I think that movie's like the 90s or 2000s, right? So yep. they're still kind of, still kind of yeah. cool to be misogynistic. And yeah, then, absolutely. you get in bit the reddit trolls the internet trolls it is yes, you know that's the, what they represent what is it yes. they, what are they called they um oh incels incels yes you know the vampire oh, hunters yeah, are now probably. incels because they're all just sitting on their computers being like oh no these women have power and they're flaunting their sexuality and they're queer we must destroy them cuz they're vampires yes absolutely <sighs> absolutely these men want to maintain heteronormative values they're white straight probably Christian. They're American. So fucking gotta be patriotic here. We're doing our duty here. Yeah. So that equals that they're right. They're okay. And so what better than purge the city of filth, right? Kill the bit girls, find a purpose. And isn't that the American way? It's all I can bring it down to folks. It's all I can bring it down to. <laughs> Cause I can't, I can't think of the only what female vampire hunter that we know of is, is Buffy and she's a vampire slayer. That's like a whole different thing. That's a whole different thing. Yep. Yeah, vampire hunters are, like, I think we run, no, we run into a vampire hunter in Buffy, and she's just like, what are you doing? He's like, we need to kill everything. We're like, no, 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 you, no, you can't just kill everything. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you just can't kill Oz yeah. because he's a werewolf. He's different. He's other. You, you know, that's not right. Oh, I'm sorry. That was also a white dude coming in to kill Oz. Yes. <laughs> there was no nuance. He's like, he's an animal. And you're like, mm, he's only an animal three days a month. He's actually a human. And it's more complicated than that. Nope, gotta kill him. He was a poacher, essentially. Another, another white dude. Just saying, just saying that there's some things that are coming to the surface here. That there's a lot of trends and patterns. So it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Vampire hunters. Why? Are, what is your problem? Misogyny doesn't like the supernatural. It's it's too different. It's too absolutely other. It's not. Too, they can't control it. If yep. they can't control it, then it's a problem. And vampires are yep. supernatural. And again, bit totally fucking subversive to so many. Yes historical ideas and tropes that we've seen in horror films. Again, all our female vampires live. We have a male vampire that was nor- that, n- that was newly made. He lives. Yeah. Vlad dies again. Guess who's destroyed, yeah. folks? Our vampire hunters. They get blown up. I love that um, quote, which is like, it's so funny they think that we don't have weapons. Like, yeah, <laughs> know, you got right? your pink grenades. <laughs> they don't think we evolved? That we're just yeah. going to go in there and rip their necks? No, of course we're going to do this from a distance. We're not stupid. Oh, totally. And we, again, delve into this in our episode three, Vampiric Sexuality, but there's that classic concept that lesbians show men that they are not needed. So that yes. terrifies them. So, oh yep, my God, got yeah, it. right? Yep, got to destroy them. Nope. Oh God, we're not needed? You don't need us? What the, what, are, what do we do with our time and our lives now Ugh, we're still gonna cat call you though and it was also frog who like brought jacob in so wait a woman who who's also hetero who doesn't say she needs a man who's just like flaunting her sexuality can't have that nope Mm-mm-mm. absolutely not so i think that we uh cracked the secret we cracked that <laughs> code <laughs> you fuckers <laughs> And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious hot 
T. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. I want to join Bite Club, but shh, we can't talk about Bite Club. Folks, everyone go watch Bit right now if you haven't. If our interview with Brad Elmore and this episode doesn't convince you how needed and crucial and important this movie is then I don't know what I can do to help you understand it. Honestly, I think that everybody should watch this movie. If you disagree with us that representation is important, then we're not the podcast for you. If you want to call us snowflakes or the PC police, then please go find another show. Horror is queer and here to stay. Oh, and remember, no fucking boys. Short and simple. I love it. And I'm going to keep it that way too, guys. Bit has been on my mind all month um, because we've been spending so much time thinking about this, but going into doing the research for this episode, learning about the problem of transphobia in horror and learning how BID is actually being seen as a positive representation of trans. And this is a new way in which we can start inserting more trans characters into our horror narratives because they've just got, just like all of us everywhere, we've got horrific stories to tell. And horror is a perfect place to do it. So why not tell these stories, but make sure that representation is being done in a way that is appropriate, right? And I think one of the things I just want to say is like a call to action in regards to a film like Bit, but all other horror and trans uh, narratives coming out in theater, coming out in literature, is how can we change, how can we see more positive representation of queer and trans representation in horror cinema? seek out and amplify the work of queer directors, horror and trans filmmakers across all genres, not just horror, everywhere. Denounce problematic and discriminatory films and uplift the stories with better messages. Bit? Really good message. Silence of the Lambs? Eh, may have won an Academy Award, but there's problematic elements and we need to keep having discussions about it. And also, devote more attention and scholarship towards black and horror feminist narratives, including queer and trans horror. And that ends our exploration of the queer vampire film, Bit. Thanks again to Brad Michael Elmore for the wonderful, insightful interview. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for all of his work on our promotional materials. Seriously, have you seen the bit work he did this month? Stunning. Also to all you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. We have a Facebook page, Spinsters of Horror, our Facebook group, the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and any podcasting app you listen to us on. Reminder, we have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop where we also have a donation button to help support us in what we're doing. Because guess what, guys? Next month, we are celebrating three fucking three years. years. <laughs> <laughs> three years of the Spinsters of Horror and I Spit on Your Podcast. And we're going to be doing something a little fun and different this time. I'm super excited. We will be doing a crossover episode with Gracie of the podcast Good Morning Nancy. And I'm super excited. Woo! We will be discussing the subversion of horror comedy. 
gonna have some fun next month, guys. We're gonna be looking at the films, The Final Girls, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and What We Do in the Shadows, because horror can be fun as well as terrifying. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs>